1863, Emperor Napoleon III overruled the French Academy of Art, creating a second official gallery for paintings they had rejected. Le Salon de Refuse immediately became way more popular than officially endorsed art and gave birth to most of the most innovative aesthetic traditions of the next century. So in addition to the other integral stage podcast series, we decided to create the Salon of the Band to talk with folks high and low who've experienced pushback or exclusion from putatively open forums and higher discussion spaces. Joining us today is the godfather of Game B, the kingpin of complexity, the grumpy uncle of artificial general intelligence, and a guy I call the Art Bell of the Metaverse because he's got that classic American radio voice. It's Jim Rutt. Hi, Jim. Hey, Layman. Great to be here. Now, you've been having some trouble with dominant online social media platforms. Is that because you're a dangerous alt-right trans-exclusionary fascist radical, or is it something else? What's going on? Oh yeah, that's uh, it, it's something else. You know, the funny thing about it is, uh, in uh, we call game A politics, which we uh, aren't all that interested in over in the game B space. I suppose I would be considered slightly on the lefty side. You know, I was I worked for the Bernie campaign in 2016. Kind of held my nose. I'm not even held my nose. I voted for Biden. You know, I probably would like somebody else better, but uh, you know, what the fuck? So in that uh, in that genre sort of fairly uh, center, center leftish. So yeah, no, not at all. Uh, but what I've, I've concluded is that Facebook, through its hyper-aggressive attempt to suppress what they think are bad guys, have accidentally created hunter-killer AIs to kill thought. Isn't that a nice thought? That's very creepy. I, I heard you express this theory that, uh, you know, cultivating these semi-autonomous machine programs to hunt down things like QAnon. They've inadvertently created monsters that go after actual thinking. Exactly. And yeah, let me lay that argument out. Yeah, yeah. First, yeah. Tell first, us the plan here. Yeah, first, I'll explain just a little bit about how deep learning AIs work in a field that I've uh, dabbled in, know a fair amount about. Uh, they're essentially brain-like networks of, in often case, billions of connections that are tuned on large amounts of data uh, to say, okay, this is, for instance, they took 60,000 QAnon people off Facebook. They may well have played all their posts through those uh, AIs to so-called train them. But this is the key. These things are opaque black boxes. They're incapable of explaining why they do anything. They have no semantic knowledge. They don't know what the words mean. They have no idea what the uh, the gist of the conversation is. All they know is these, uh, you know, 200 million posts by 60,000 QAnon people, uh, when you, uh, and then compare it with another 60,000 people's posts, they say, these, these look like QAnon, these don't, but they have no sense whatsoever. And interestingly, as we've thought back about this, what is QAnon about? It's about a weird kind of bullshit, right? It's explication of the oracular pronouncements of Q and lots of discussion and arguing about what it means and then attempt to uh, take what it means and compare it to what's actually happening and, and more talk. So actually from a syntactical, pre, uh, you know, lower than semantic level, uh, QAnon is sort of has the signature of thought. In fact, I suppose it is thought. It's just like crazy thought. Uh, it's the schizophrenic uh, version of network sense making. And, and so they've, what they've done is trained our hypothesis, can't prove it, but it fits the data. And I've talked to people who know a lot more about this stuff than I. And when I lay out this hypothesis, they go, hmm, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so they've created these hunter killers uh, that run around and say anything that is involved in 
thinking through from basic principles, comparing evidence to what our theories are, adjusting our theories, et cetera, go, oh shit, that looked like QAnon. When actually what it is, is the signature of thought. Uh, QAnon is just an example of thought gone nuts, right? Which happens all the time. And uh, that a company that's as knowledgeable about AI as Facebook would let loose these hunter killers. And these are hunter killers. Uh, and that's the point I should make that the, the game B3 that all got kicked off simultaneously did not get put in game B, in Facebook jail for two weeks. Uh, we're, we're not given a appealable ban. We were given the death penalty. Uh, the ban said, this cannot be reviewed. This cannot be reversed. Fuck you and the horse you rode in on, right? And of course they lied, lying sacks of shit that they are. Uh, you know, we spun up a major shitstorm over on Twitter. Several million people joined in. We know people, uh, and we know people that know people. At least four people intervene on our behalf with Facebook employees who they knew at moderately high levels or medium high levels at least. We even had a Facebook security person come and join our secret Game B admin group uh, just so they could see we don't actually eat babies or engage in blood sacrifice. And uh, 12 hours later, they uh, reversed the ban. But did they even tell us? No. Uh, that's that's the thing that really gets me steamed about these people is the Kafka-esque nature of the whole process. And that's intriguing, that Kafka-esque element, because, um, you know, in the Kafka-like universe, you get the sense that there is some uh, human other, some council that's fucking with us somehow. But the alternative in the contemporary environment is the information systems themselves are so opaque that no one could tell us even if they wanted to. Yeah, fortunately, I have a spy deep, deep, deep in Facebook who is going to attempt to find out exactly why. And I, uh, I'm looking very forward to getting that and publicizing it to the world, the fuckers. Uh, but uh, think about the Kafkaesque aspect at the higher level, though, that very much like uh, you know, some of the Kafka stories, you get banned. They don't tell you why. Oh, violation of our standards. There's like 64 pages of gobbledygook at this point, incomprehensible. They don't tell you what you did. They don't say what post or posts uh, caused some uh, theoretical violation of something in the 64 pages of shit. But this is the funny part. And this is the part where it's like they've just gone too far. And, is, and that is when they let you back in, uh, they don't tell you. Uh, and this I've known this before because some of my other friends have been banned and then let back in after shit storms. You know, literally, we were on a conference call with the Game B moderator teams, and uh, somebody said they got an email from a set friend that said, "Looks like you got let back in." So they announced it on our on our Zoom, and we all said, oh, "Sure, shit, we're all let back in." Are we ever notified? No. Do we get an apology? No. Uh, it's just like, what the fuck, right? The gods behind this, you know, the the Wizard of Oz, you know, throws lightning bolts, and then with enough pressure. They'll, they occasionally are forced to revoke them, but do they even admit they uh, revoked them? They tell you, no, do they apologize? No, it's just like a classic run amok authoritarian power mad structure. And they're incompetent. It on makes top you it. want to be a terrorist sometimes. Like we had a thing here a couple of months ago. Uh, my girlfriend got kicked off Twitter. We figured basically just for following Brett Weinstein's 2020 campaign for unity, uh, and the way we figured that was that's the only thing she'd ever done on Twitter. She'd been on there a month. So that was our guess, but no information about why. And when it was released, again, like you're saying, no information. It kind of puts you in a superstitious position. 
the gods is an interesting example because our idea about our ancestors is they're looking at all the natural complexity in the world and they just have no way to make that more intelligible to themselves at a deeper level. So do you think systems operating like this will cause human populations to become more superstitious, more mythological, less reasonable, just because we're facing all this information opacity? I think it doesn't help. I for goddamn sure. I mean, uh, you know, as you can tell, I'm a little bit more spun up than usual today, right? <laughs> and I've been in war fighting mode uh, ever since, and we've been doing some shit. You know, I'm appearing on lots of podcasts. We have built an alternative uh, to Game B's presence on Facebook, which is in final test right now and will be release, released soon. And uh, we're going to march our several thousand people off of Facebook over to our own home. Uh, I'm going to teach other people how to do it. I might even go into the business of setting up that counter Facebook, right? These people have really pissed me off because it's, again, if they had said, you violated 1.1.1.3 in the terms of conditions, pointed to a paragraph. And oh, by the way, it was these nine posts uh, that triggered this. Uh, I could at least, and oh, by the way, here's an appeals mechanism in which you can point out that we were wrong, right? Uh, if they had done something like that, I'd say, all right, you know, they, they have a hard job. They're growing so fast, billions of people. It's an unprecedented problem. You know, they've made the big mistake of succumbing to the demand for moderation, which we can talk about later. They should never have gone down that road, but even assume they went down the road. Uh, at least if they operated with transparency and due process, uh, one could just say, oh, they made a mistake and they'll correct it. But the fact that they zap you on high with an allegedly unrepeal, unappealable, unappealable death penalty uh, and then reverse it as soon as you throw some shit at them uh, and then don't tell you they've reversed it and don't apologize. No wonder people are spun up, right? And it's amazing the number of folks I've heard from uh, since. Turned out that on the same day, they whacked some socialist groups uh, they whacked an anti-QAnon group. That, that one I love. Specifically set up to, uh, uh, you know, basically in, uh, uh, help people make sense of QAnon from the perspective that QAnon is nonsense, right? Of course, to do that, you have to post some QAnon things. And again, that's uh, these deep learning AIs. They have no semantics at all. Zero, none, right? Uh, you know, they're pattern matchers at low levels. And you don't even know what level they're doing their pattern matching because the nature of deep learning neural nets is their opacity, uh, you know? And uh, so they're just bringing it on themselves, you know? And, and I'm now saying- of, The absence of semantic analysis, is that because we don't know how to do it and it's really hard? Or is it because it's more expensive and time consuming and they just don't want to build that into their systems? Like what's the obstacle in terms of making the algorithms capable of distinguishing different levels of nuance and sophistication in a discourse on the same topic? Yeah, now they can't do, uh, nobody has that working at a high level and to the degree they have even prototypes, they're computationally very expensive and slow. Uh, and so they, what they have done is just said, oh yeah, just like for uh, you know, throwing a grenade into a crowd is a good way to get, you know, kill a few of the bad people. Oh, you'll kill some good people too, but oh well. Uh, so they've chosen a technology that is available off the shelf now, uh, which is if you have enough data, you can train almost up, almost anything up, but you don't know what you got. Uh, and they clearly created this thing uh, without uh, enough test data from a varied enough uh, set of other places, alternatives, let's say good faith thinking. Uh, and they've built something that hunts and kills thought. Uh, because it's relatively easy. And if you have as much data as they have, as much computation as they have, 
uh, you can spin this shit up. But it, the, the irresponsible and or incompetent and or immoral thing was to turn these things loose in the world, either with reckless disregard of the consequences or not caring. How much, um, you know, irresponsible, incompetent or immoral? Which one do you think is the larger player at the moment in terms of the way tech giants are doing this? Well, I think it starts with immoral, uh, that they should not be in the business of policing point of view. I think that's a moral decision uh, that these people have failed. Uh, it particularly annoys me about Zuckerberg, right? He has absolute control of Facebook. He has his class B stock or whatever the fuck the way they do it. So nobody can outvote him on anything. He can tell people to go piss up a rope. Nobody can do a goddamn thing. Uh, he even uh, mouthed the right words at, on his uh, famous speech at Georgetown University, uh, where he actually came out as a, in rhetorically, as a uh, big friend and understander of the importance of free speech. But he has bent the knee to the fucking lynch mob and to the press and has now gone on to this massive point of view uh, attack on free speech discourse, even though he knows better. Right. And if that isn't the essence of immorality, I don't know what it what is a guy who has absolute authority to tell people to go piss up a rope. Uh, knows the value of free speech, articulated brilliantly in this speech, but nonetheless bends the knee and does evil knowingly. Now that's immorality. So it starts there. Incompetence, uh, which you know, Facebook's one of the great AI powers of the world. They have researchers who could have told them that the way they did this was going to produce the side effect of whacking lots of in innocent people uh, who, the way deep learning neural nets work, uh, match the pattern in a non-semantic sense, uh, but are entirely innocent of what you're trying to get. But here, I don't know, again, does it immorality or bureaucratic incompetence? Hard to tell. It may well be that the people who implement these things for production don't talk to the AI researchers at all. You know, they pull down TensorFlow or whatever. Uh, what's, the, what's the one Facebook uses that competes with TensorFlow? I don't know. But anyway, and they just train the shit up and let it loose. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, again, it's all murky, though I will say that, uh, you know, I like the old law, you know, don't blame, uh, don't don't explain with malice what is better explained with incompetence. So I think incompetence, particularly in the bureaucratic, you know, column A doesn't talk to column B sense. Uh, there's a fair amount of incompetence uh, uh, here as well. But it all starts from the immorality. The sucker shouldn't be doing this at all, period, right? Uh, what businesses are theirs, frankly, to censor QAnon? Yeah, they're screwballs, but so the fuck what, right? Uh, there's lots of screwballs in the world. You know, I like to point out the fact that, uh, you know, uh, if you look at it objectively, Catholicism, Hinduism, lots of stuff are even weirder and crazier than QAnon. And yet we allow conversations about that. I also like to point out that Facebook has dozens of groups, including some big ones, uh, that talk about Marxist-Leninism, you know, an explicitly revolutionary ideology that when it was tried in the 20th century, typically killed 10% of the population in the countries that it was tried in. I mean, what the fuck, people? Uh, you know, so why are you picking and choosing? That's not your job. Your job is to be a public square for open faith, you know, for good faith discourse. And even if it's crazy, so what? Why should you be telling people uh, what they should be thinking about uh, at all? Now, if you want to have objective seems, It seems simultaneously immoral and unnecessary and also, you know, blind to what metamodernists and integral thinkers think of as the vertical dimension, right? Like all those things, Christianity, Islam, whatever it is, 
there's always going to be low level versions, which could be dangerous and higher level discussions around the same content that every set of content has a huge range in terms of the sophistication and depth and richness with which people are going at it. So if you're teaching these things to respond just to the content cues, the topic matter, then you're absolutely, you're collapsing any possible vertical or depth dimension for human experience and discourse. Yep. And uh, parallax also, the, you know, the way we look at things from more different points of view helps us see reality. I mean, it's a, uh, and it's been known since uh, at least the days of Kant uh, that we don't actually experience the world directly. We see it through the filters of our perceptions and our tools, et cetera. And the more points of view we look at, even aberrant ones, right? Sure. Uh, and I try to put myself in the shoes of uh, even QAnons occasionally. I say, all right, if I were a person who had absorbed this theory, what would I make of the world? I'm, you know, I, continue to come back and say, those people are fucking nuts, uh, but it's at least an interesting exercise. And uh, to say that that is not allowed strikes me as a you know, complete abandonment of the Enlightenment project. Uh, you know, the one philosopher, you know, I'm sort of famous on my podcast for saying, when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. Unfortunately, I didn't bring a pistol for me today or I'd actually pull one out which I have been known to do. But I do have one philosopher on my working office bookshelf, and that's Karl Popper's uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies. Uh, he makes the point in great sophistication uh, that a society that tolerates other points of view is much more self-correcting and has a much greater uh, ability to evolve and unfold in a positive direction than a society uh, that suppresses points of view. Uh, and, you know, again, uh, this is just a fine example of, uh, from the highest level, the moral level of the decision against his own knowledge that it's wrong uh, to suppress points of view, which makes me just disgusted by uh, the behavior of Zuckerberg and Facebook in this whole episode. No, I think you're right. Our perception of reality is dependent upon discovering consistencies across different perspectives. And, and inconsistencies. Across any and set of perspectives, you're limiting people's, you're limiting the capacity of human intelligence to discover reality. Yeah, and, and also the, to eliminate perspectives, right? Uh, contrary to what the postmodernists would say, if I have appendicitis, I think I'm going to Johns Hopkins <laughs> Hospital, not calling in a witch doctor, right? So, uh, you know, I'm a little bit more radical than the integralists are. Uh, you know, I assess perspectives and I say, mostly bullshit. Not going to waste my time on that. How much time am I going to spend uh, trying to understand astrology, right? Not going to. Uh, on the other hand, I will look at almost anything and say, is there a signal here? Is it all noise? Is it mostly signal or is, as which is often the case, uh, some blend of signal and noise. And can we tease out the signal from the noise? And to uh, say that we're not allowed to do that as sovereign humans is just grotesque. It's the game plan of the authoritarian. And, uh, you know, fuck Zuck for going there, right? Uh, basically, in fact, I started a little meme today on Facebook, which is Zuck is a pig fucker. Uh, you know, just post that on Facebook and just post that. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's let's stab the bear and make him react ever more uh, irrationally and show what he's actually made out of. <laughs> well, that's great. Fuck Zuck, because I was going to say to you, you know, what is it that these algorithms are looking for? What should we say right now that would make this podcast highly suspect and something that they would want to target if they could? 
aside from fuck Zuck, which seems pretty good. You know, yeah. what can I say I love Allah? I love Trump. What what is it? What would what would provoke the algorithms? Yeah, I uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, uh, but I think it's the fact that we're having a wide ranging conversation uh, that. You know, we mentioned QAnon, right? Uh, I said QAnon. I said they're fucking assholes, basically, right? But none of the fact, nonetheless, I said QAnon, right? So, oh, QAnon! He said it seven times. Oh, no, man, right? Uh, that's at the one low level. Uh, that's at the vocabulary level. And there's no doubt they found some things there that they're that they're triggering on. But the the one that's concerned me even more is the fact that we're having a wide range, multi viewpoint perspective, and that we're thinking. We're doing actual thinking, not simulated thinking. And I think that's dangerous now on Facebook, uh, which is fucking nuts, right? How's society going to get ahead if good faith, open-ended thinking is to be suppressed? This is horrendous. All right. Two things popped up for me. First of all is when you do this, I love it. You seem like Yosemite Sam to me. (laughs) The second thing is, you know, one way to think about this is that they've trained these devices or just like humans have done throughout history, we've set up systems and those systems are built to deal with low level phenomenon and they have negative effects on higher level phenomenon. But another way to think about it is, is it possible that the system has some special grudge against wide ranging conversations, potentially transformational options? You know, I remember when I was a kid turning on the TV and seeing the Taliban blowing up Buddha statues. You know, and people, Islamic fundamentalists target Sufi temples. The Christians went at the Gnostics pretty hard. Is there a kind of collective human move sometimes to attack the very things that might be bringing in higher intelligence and transformational possibilities? It's certainly possible, though I do reject uh, conspiracy theory thinking. You know, some of the first reaction on our Game B group, oh, they're out to get Game B. I said, I wish they were. I wish we were well enough known to be worth going after and getting, because we are uh, deeply threatening to Game A over the long term in a very peaceful and evolutionary way. I think the the most recent paper I wrote on it, my journey to Game B, I uh, proposed it would take, uh, what was it? 70 years of gradual evolution. But at the end of the day, we'll have a very different and better society. And so, yeah, one could say if, you know, somehow, you know, the man behind the curtain that controls game A, which of course there is no such thing, uh, had stumbled onto game A and go, oh, those fuckers are going to get us in 70 years. Uh, yeah, and then they could have put the, you know, oh, yeah, squash them. But that's not what happened. What actually happened is, uh, I believe, more or less inadvertent stupidity. Is there a, so there's always been, of course, uh, in human society, an anti-heterodox perspective. You know, one of the things that it probably helps small groups, you know, the 150 100, uh, and under uh, so-called Dunbar number, hunter-gatherer forager bands was coherence, uh, which is to believe some local nonsense and believe it together and made you more effective. And that's probably been cooked into our genes. And so there is a relatively pervasive sense of negative reaction to anything new. But hell, I've been a heterodox son of a bitch since I was 11, right? And, uh, hey, wait, and I, what happened when you were 11 that caused this? Ah, this was a good story. I was raised a Roman Catholic, right? And being a person who loves complicated and intricate stories, I actually l- really fell into it and, you know, got took to reading the Bible and talking to uh, priests at a pretty deep level and uh, reading secondary sources and all this sort of stuff and, and was really into it, say, from age seven to nine. 
Uh, and by the way, I was a precocious little fuck. I could read college age books by the time I was eight. Uh, and uh, uh, so I was like really into this thing. And probably for the same reason, I later got into the Lord of the Rings, which I have read 39 times, including once in one sitting in 24 hours. But anyway, at the same time, I was also uh, learning about science and started reading more and more science books and started reading some history books. Uh, I read uh, uh, The Outline of History, H.G. Uh, Wells' Outline of History. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, I was still, you know, exploring Catholicism fairly seriously. Uh, but then about age nine and a half, I said, there's something that, is, that this picture is not coherent. And so I sort of lived in the liminal space for about a year and a half where I, where I continued to read science. And they also then explored some of the other religions. I read basically at the encyclopedia level about Hinduism, Muslimism, uh, Buddhism, uh, I think even a couple other weirdo ones like Zoroastrianism, et cetera. Well, I was trying to explore all this, think about it. Then when I was 11, between sixth grade and seventh grade, I had literally an epiphany. A light came on and I was going, you know what? All these religions are just shit somebody made up to control people. And you know what? Science is a much more useful lens uh, to understand the universe. And so I'm going to say, fuck religion. And you know, that was a pretty radical thing to do in a working class neighborhood in 1964. Uh, but I was not going to back down, right? You want to fight me over? Let's fight, right? Uh, you were a convert. You had an anti-religious spiritual experience. Exactly. And uh, But for a year and a half of work to get there, right? It, it all of a sudden crystallized, but I had done the work. Uh, and I, I just see through it. I, I still do. The same lens still works. I look at revealed religion and I go, you know, there may be some payload deep inside that's interesting and useful. And, you know, and they all have their mystical components. I, I enjoy mysticism myself. I can flip myself into a mystical state quite easily. But the superstructure is clearly human. Uh, the books are clearly written by humans. And, they were there, and the biggest purpose they seem to have socially is to control people. And so once you have that lens, the trick doesn't work on you anymore. It's just like once you understand how three card Monty works, you know, the uh, car, the street corner uh, card game scam, you sit there and you look at it, you go, how can people fall for that? But they continue to do so. And so that epiphany uh, was probably my first really serious heterodox view, uh, which I have kept ever since. <laughs> I done a lot of work on what we call post-metaphysical spirituality, where you're trying to unpack it from its metaphysical assumptions and distinguish the kernel of what's viable from all the traditional mythic nonsense that's been the uh, architecture around it for all these years. But it's a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> I can see why someone would want to dismiss most of it rather than put that work in. <laughs> and as, as I admit that there are similarities deep in little corners of all these traditions, typically around uh, the mystical experience. And as, you, and as Thomas Jefferson pointed out, he did a really cool thing. He wrote Jefferson's Bible, which is he pulled out of the New Testament only those words actually spoken by Yosef, by Yahshua uh, ben Yosef, also known as Jesus. Uh, and it was, it was just his first person uh, uh, statements. And they're actually interesting. And, uh, you know, I could point out some absurdities in them, but they're not bad. And, 
and so there, you know, there's you know, the Buddha had some interesting things to say, particularly in the older stuff. I mean, I've uh, dug into the so-called uh, Pali canon of Buddhism to say what did Buddha actually say, as opposed to the, post to the accretions that came later, divas and celestial spheres and all this horseshit. Right? Uh, it's actually pretty interesting, and so I have done at least some of the work in that domain, <laughs> uh, probably more than most people would guess based on my. Uh, in fact, uh, I was point out that I do every ten years. I read the first six books of the Bible, the Pentateuch plus Joshua. As I say, if you're going to hear the joke, you might as well get to the punchline. And Joshua is the punchline on the Pentateuch. And I just did that three or four months ago. So yeah, uh, I, I prowl around in this stuff, uh, but I still believe these were human uh, creations for the purpose of controlling people. And that's what they do. And I see through it the same way I see through the three card Monty man. Sure. It seems to be some kind of value in the uh, coordination and coherence function of what we might call control. But our goal now is to figure out some much more sophisticated and useful and humanly empowering way to coordinate and make coherence socially between people other than giving them uh, false, <laughs> fairly top-down social structures. Absolutely. And that's what the whole game B is all about, right? How do we organize ourselves bottom-up, self-organizing, decentralized, network-centric, and metastable so that we have the kinds of coherence, in fact, higher levels of coherence than were ever achieved uh, by these other structures, but we do it in a human, humane way, uh, democratic, uh, open, transparent, criticizable, and evolutionary. We're going to outcompete competition and maybe out-religion religion. religion. <laughs> yep, yeah. and as uh, John Verveke and Jordan Hall like to say, uh, you know, maybe Game B is the religion that's not a religion. I personally don't like that label just because I think religion's a shitty-ass label. It's like saying, uh, you know, uh, dog shit that's not dog shit, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but the, I understand the concept, and I wish they didn't use the R word, but they do. Uh, but I do believe we're looking to fill the same evolutionary ecological niche, but with a much better, more humane, and more moral approach. So you're trying to set up some Game B alternatives to the mainstream social platforms like Facebook, but what's your take on whether or not these private <laughs> platforms have the right to do what they did. It may be immoral, but isn't it their property? Can't they just kick people off randomly? Or, you know, do we need to have a different discussion socially about when something becomes public as opposed to private? Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, question. And one I've been, uh, uh, I was frankly say, adjusting my historical views about, you know, somebody that helped build all this shit. You know, I've been building online uh, communities since 1981, uh, long before the internet. On the early, there was a whole, people don't remember, there was a whole generation of these systems. The source where I worked was the very first consumer online service. We had most of the stuff on the web in 1981, 1980. And then there was CompuServe, and then there was Prodigy, and then there was AOL. And so there was actually uh, multiple iterations of this stuff before the internet. And then the internet became feasible to the general public around 1990 or 91, but really didn't amount to much till 94. Uh, and then it started spinning up pretty rapidly. So I've been, uh, you know, been part of the so-called netizen movement since the beginning. I was member number seven for the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, was there at the well on the, at the time that the EFF was thought up. Uh, so I've always been a net libertarian. But the last six months, 
uh, not just my banning, but the banning of other people I know and the you know, suppression of other groups and things, it led me to uh, realize that I was wrong. At some point, groups, be uh, platforms become so big that the power of Metcalf's law, which says that the power of a network is the square of its members. Personally, I don't believe that's correct, but I do believe it's an exponential greater than one, which means that as you get big enough, you become so powerful that it's really difficult to compete with you. That once uh, that, that happens, these platforms should no longer be considered uh, private domains. Uh, in the same way, company towns have been ruled by the Supreme Court uh, to have to have due process, that shopping malls uh, have to let you collect signatures in the shopping mall for the same basic reason. These things should be considered common carriers, much like the phone company. If the phone company started beeping our conversations when we mentioned QAnon, we'd be ripshit. Uh, and it seems to me that democratic regulation of platforms bigger than, I'm going to throw out a number, 5 million unique visitors per, per month. Uh, it turns out you can be pretty big. Where's still that number coming from, Jim? Uh, look, I just looked at platforms that I know about, okay. uh, and uh, and the, you know, ones that are under five million uh, typically have a real personality, right? Uh, uh, ones I've gotten really interested in called Minds, Minds.com. They have a bit under five million, I think, something like that. Uh, though they're rigorously free speech, and so they're 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 not in it. But anyway, I just came up with number five. Maybe it's ten million, maybe it's twenty-five million. But anyway, right, when you get to the size of Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you should definitely be ruled to be a common carrier and fall under a democratically uh, enacted series of regulations. And those regulations ought to include uh, viewpoint neutrality. Uh, they ought to include transparency and due process in things like banning people, including uh, saying specifically why you were banned, specifically what you did that violated that, and give you the option to make that charge public. Uh, so there's transparency. Like I check the box. I authorize, I demand that Facebook uh, put this in the public record so other people can look at it. And that there will be an appeals process and that there probably be two levels of appeals process uh, in the same way that we would uh, you know, expect due process of any common carrier, right? They can't turn off your electric power without some due process and you have the right to appeal. Uh, so I, I believe the time has come, contrary to my previous views, uh, that the two big biggest platforms, and, and I guess I don't even go to some of these other ones, Instagram, Snapchat, they're probably over the line too, ought to be regulated as, as common carriers under democratic regulation. There you have it, folks. Jim Rudd, democratic libertarian socialist who is more religious than you might think he is. Mm. <laughs> um you know, the, the idea that these algorithms got trained up in this way and then come after things like higher discussion spaces in the game B vein, it makes a lot of sense and it plays on this opacity, right? It explains why there's no real information about what happened and how you got back on. But how would you feel, you know, if it turned out that the decision had been made by a group of human beings that just looked at you in game B and made this as opposed to algorithms? Would it change your emotions? Oh, yeah, I probably would. I would move much more towards uh, malice and immorality than incompetence <laughs> in my uh, uh, in my analysis. And I would be uh, even more warlike in my uh, uh, counterattack. Who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character? Oh, without a doubt, Tom Bombadil. God hey, damn it. Too. There we go. <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> Uh, so 
in setting up some game B alternatives, you know, what's the what's the framing of that? What sorts of tools do we need in order to get out of the kind of systems that we're locked in right now, especially in terms of digital communication systems? Yeah, I've been thinking about this for 40 years, as I said. So I've got infinite number of things I would like to do. Unfortunately, the affordances of the current white label platforms uh, don't let you do them all. But what I, if I were to have a blank sheet of paper, which I now have, because this is not our last move, I can tell you that, I would like to have a uh, build a social network that's built from a governance first perspective. And, what does that mean? What does that look like? Which basically means the ownership would be the membership, uh, that there would be the ability of the membership to, uh, to you know, elect admins, approve rules, et cetera, and would not be top-down diktat, uh, but it would also be uh, have a lot of pluralism. This is one of the things we, we will have on our new platform is that it has groups and groups will have their own admins and they can set their own rules, right? Uh, and so I would see that a game B done right from the bottom would have governance as a fundamental, uh, but governance would be fractal. It could oper operate at various levels uh, with various kinds of authority uh, under the doctrine of, you know, sort of a theory of game B that we call subsidiarity, which ironically enough, we borrowed from the Catholic church uh, that most things uh, should well, all things should be governed at the lowest possible level where the problem is uh, can be dealt with, uh, and so you know that would be certainly a part of a game B platform. So minimize uh, system wide policies. It might just be don't do anything illegal, right? And then uh, go down from there. Where hey, you know the uh, you know antique Packard club on the game B network that want that gets invaded by the antique Cadillac people who are razzing them should damn well have the right to boot out those Cadillac people if they so inclined, uh, because that's at a very low level around an affinity group. Uh, so I think that's part of it. The other one, uh, is sense making, uh, you know, in the, uh, one of the great quotes from my good friend, Jordan Hall is render unto signal that which is signal render unto noise that which is noise. And uh, Facebook does the exact opposite. Uh, you know, it upregulates noise, anything that gets people riled up, it gives you more of that. Uh, stuff that's, you know, sober-minded and signal, it gives you less of that. And so exactly how to do this, I'm not 100% sure, I got some ideas, uh, but having the ecosystem upregulate quality and downregulate shit uh, through the emergent action of the participants would be a very important part uh, of a uh, of a game B platform, uh, and also just some basic things. You know that we're you know the goal is not to keep you on right. Uh, no advertising because right? once you go to, go down the road of advertising, you become corrupt. Uh, instead of being, uh, I'm going to sneeze here. <laughs> oh, God Bless damn it! <laughs> ah, a little a little dusty here in my old converted storefront office here in a tiny town of 50 people. But uh, what was I saying there? Uh, shit. Well, let's segue into something else. I had a nice conversation with Jordan Hall a couple of months ago, and we were talking in part about like a left and right hand version of what's going on, where the left hand version is how do we change the overall 
rules and regulations of the societies in which we live to make the kind of development we're hoping for more likely. And then the right-hand version is how do we set up smaller examples? How do we set up civiums? How do we set up new technologies so we can try it out and see if it works? And where we essentially have autonomy over the thing we're trying to make. And that's in many respects, that's the old tech dream. Uh, you know, my older brother's a computer scientist. He's always talking about how we were already doing this in the 70s. <laughs> he was right. It's true. But haven't, haven't the tech idealists been promising us decentralized structural solutions for half a century now and we don't have them? What's the holdup? And uh, should we believe yeah, them this time? Well, of course, we've always had them, right? Uh, think about the invention of the blog, for instance, right? It used to be, uh, it's all, the, the cynical saying was, you only have freedom of the press if you can afford a press. Uh, once the blog came up and, you know, free things like Blogspot, uh, which never censored anybody in the good old days, uh, anyone that wanted to could put their ideas out into the public marketplace of ideas. And they did. I mean, there were at one point millions of blogs out there. And, uh, you know, and then we've got kind of meta blogging platforms like Messenger, you know, the fact that anyone who wants to can put up a free site on WordPress.com. Uh, so the, the basic technical infrastructure for a certain amount of decentralized publishing has existed as long as the internet and the, particularly the web has existed. But the problem is that the Metcalf's law, network effects. Uh, people want to be on Facebook because everybody else is on Facebook. Uh, but, but I think they've now shit in the bed there so badly uh, that lots and lots of people are saying, all right, there's a network effect, but the thing has turned so toxic due to its advertising-driven business model of trying to point everybody to the worst possible content. And now this new authoritor authoritarian uh, top-down suppression of quality discourse uh, that more and more people are, are ready to use the affordances which have been out there for a long time. I mean, uh, and they've gotten better. I mean, I've looked at the uh, white label social networking platforms on and off for how many years now? Le 10 years, eight years. And they are way better than they were uh, at any time. And the one we're moving to is uh, really pretty damn good and pretty cost effective. Uh, so it may be that the, the, uh, the technical infrastructures continue to approve uh, the value added from the big platforms have now gotten so negative value subtracted from every transaction that the tipping point may be near occurring where the world will now refragment out into these uh, things. Now, of course, it unfortunately leaves some other choke points that we have to think about long and hard. Like, you know, the recent experience of Parler got kicked off of the app stores uh, by Google and Apple uh, and then got booted from AWS. You know, that's that's a problem. That's a danger. You know, you know the the first points you do web based is safer than app based, uh, but the AWS example says you'd be better be damn careful who your hosting uh, platform is as well. And uh, the folks at Minds.com I mentioned earlier are very concerned about this, and they've built their back end. So while uh, it runs on AWS, it also runs other places. And should AWS ever boot them, uh, they'd be up and running again. I mean, they wouldn't even lose, they wouldn't even be down. And so I think we've spent more and more time thinking about how to get around the choke points. Then we need to get even further away, get to the distributed web where we can get out of the choke points of domain names and app stores entirely. And then finally, get, get away from the choke points of the TCP IP networking because your ISP can ban you as well. They don't do it too often, but they can. And if this 
choke chicken choking uh, gets more pervasive, they'll get the ISPs to do it. And so we need to have non-TCP IP-based networking, which is just on the verge of becoming practical. A uh, good friend of mine who's a senior dude in the tech industry, won't even mention his name, don't want to get him in trouble. Uh, he and I are talking about uh, what it will take to build a non-chokeable, non-TCP IP network. And we know how, uh, but it'll take a while. So part of it's building up these non-chokeable systems and protocols. And part of it is getting people to switch, right? Like you're saying, people like to go where the people are. So that's got to be broken up somehow. And that's a, you've got a bit of leverage at a moment when people are kind of disgusted by what's going on in the central place. But there's also this problem that there's a extreme incentives for private organizations to try to capture all this stuff, you know? One of my favorite words is counter anti-disintermediation, just because I like saying it, but you can set up these disintermediating systems and there are people who are, they spend their lives trying to figure out how they can recapture it. So when you set up new systems, what's your thinking around making it secure from people who are spending their whole life and massive amounts of money trying to figure out how to hack into that and recapture it into the kinds of systems we've always labored under? Of course, that's a very important point. And, you know, again, it's, it seems contradictory, but it's not. But, the, you know, the Game B group has built a very strong uh, moderator team. And we have had people try to capture us on several occasions. And we have defeated them by throwing them off, right? And we had the famous uh, Black Monday uh, back in June. I think we whacked 22 people simultaneously uh, from two different factions that were trying to infiltrate us. Uh, and uh, we'll have to continue that, right? Uh, we'll have to be rigorous about it. And as I said before, I believe that affinity groups are well within their rights to establish whatever kind of criteria they want, no matter how absurd, as long as they're transparent about it. And we are, we say, we threw you out for violation of rule eight, right? Which is about this long. And uh, sorry, you broke rule eight, you're out. Or we broke rule seven and you were warned previously because some of the rules say death penalty instantly. Others say uh, one warning. Others say, you know, multiple warnings. And But we're very explicit and transparent about it. And we actually let people back on appeal. Uh, so I'm absolutely happy that we'll continue to do that in game B on our new platform. Uh, we also require people to answer questions before we let them in, uh, which I mean, better than nothing. And uh, so, yeah, that's an ongoing fight. There ain't no answer. It's a, a you know, everything is co-evolution. Everything is co-evolutionary game theoretical conflict, unfortunately. And we're well aware of that. And so we will act accordingly. Are you going to be doing it all through human moderation or are you training up some algorithms to do this for you? Human moderation and even better group uh, signaling. Uh, the system will have a reporting function, but the reporting function will not trigger any action. It'll just bring it to the to the eyes of the moderators uh, at some point. At, where the current state of the art is, I would not automate this. Uh, I would rather ignore a report than turn uh, the current state of deep learning algorithms uh, loose on this stuff because we know they're just not good enough yet. Now, when they are good enough, or if they are, are ever good enough, uh, particularly if they can give a readout on their reason, if you want to listen to the podcast I did with Ben Gertzel, one of the leading authorities of AI and AGI, I just published it on jimrutshow.com on Friday night. Uh, we go quite a bit into the fact that there are other technologies uh, in which uh, things that would do pattern matching also explain their reasoning. 
and and even some forms of deep learning, but they're much more expensive and still fairly fragile, can also do that. And so my my threshold would be to even consider doing AI-based moderation. It has to give a readout of what rule was broken and what content violated the rule. Until we get there, not going to do automated moderation. Yeah, I was just watching um, Max Tegmark on Lex Friedman's podcast. And it seems like most of his focus right now is on trying to make these structures that we're setting up more intelligible so that we can actually get humanly comprehensible information out of them about what it is that they're doing. It just takes a little longer to set it up that way. A lot harder, uh, especially if you're using deep learning. There are other approaches like uh, uh, Ben Gersel's OpenCog project, which has been around for a long time, uses an entirely different approach. It uses probabilistic logic networks uh, where all the rules are in something called atomese, which is essentially English. It's like a computer language crossed with English. And uh, you know, it, it could quite easily basically explain its logic, uh, even though it might be quite deep, uh, you can have it kick out uh, an explanation for anything it did if you set it up correctly. But at this point, it's not as cost effective as deep learning, but it's getting better and computers are getting cheaper. And at some point, things like the open cog technology may well be fine for doing moderation. Uh, but I think it's grossly irresponsible, incompetent and immoral uh, to turn loose today's deep learning algorithms, uh, particularly if they're not going to be reviewed by humans. What is your information input these days? Other than the Pentateuch and Lord of the Rings, what are you, uh, you know, you watching shows, you watching podcasts? What are you taking in? I, I scan pretty broadly. Uh, dirty little secret, I don't listen to many podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I'm a reader. That's why I always post a transcript for our podcast. Uh, so I read a lot. You know, I read 100 books a year, something like that. I uh I'm a member of a number of online communities, though I took a break from them all for six months from July to January, as I do every year. And I'm back into them now, though. Uh, I'm on mailing lists. I do 15 or 20 Zooms a week with people all over the world on interesting topics. Uh, let's see, what else do I do uh, to keep up what's going on? Uh, that's probably the mo most of the stuff I do. I subscribe well, to- the last thing you read that- changed your mind on something you thought oh thank god i read that that really gave me a, a shift well it was something pretty minor uh this morning uh, i read something on a, a email newsletter for microsoft.net developers uh which uh talked about uh two things actually two things both were like fuck i'm gonna have to look into this uh one of them is a new tool that lets you build your own languages within c sharp which is the main programming language for net so that you can literally create your own language like anatomies or something like that and have uh the program compile it on the fly and incorporate it into the program so the program can essentially modify itself uh, that's pretty damn interesting. The other, and this is something that's been in the works for a while, they've now gone to public release of uh, what's it called? Uh, Direct ML, which is a quite powerful uh, machine learning deep neural net type library uh, that uses the GPUs, you know, the graphics cards in your computer to massively accelerate them uh, that will now run on any Windows program. So you'll be able to incorporate quite powerful deep learning machine learning algorithms that run on your your computer without any crazy shit from an ordinarily compiled Windows program. Those two things together 
uh, I'm going to have to think about for a few days what that means and uh, what is it that I might want to do with them. Because I still, I do also do programming. I still write stuff. I wrote a, uh, you know, pretty cool phone-based game a couple of years ago. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've just written a completely new kind of uh, neural net that's not at all like the ones that the world currently uses. It's, uh, I need, I, over Christmas, I took two weeks off my podcast and everything else and wrote the sucker. I need another two weeks to finish it. Uh, it runs, but it, uh, its learning algorithm needs some improvement. So those are two things I learned this morning. Nice. How about that? <laughs> uh, thinking about languages makes me th- put in my mind uh, the Wolfram language, and then I thought about Wolfram, and then I thought about his argument that basically most of the patterns in the universe are so computationally complex that they would be opaque to us. We can't outguess them. Um, so aren't we kind of fundamentally stuck in a universe that suffers from the same problem as not knowing why Facebook booted you off. That's great. <laughs> I, that's, I like that perspective. Uh, I'm not, wasn't aware that was one, a Wolfram argument, uh, but it makes perfect sense. Actually uh, there's no guarantee. Well, science continues to ratchet its knowledge and science, science is still by far the best tool we have for understanding reality and separating horseshit from uh, uh, non-horseshit. Uh, there's no guarantee that it'll give us all the answers. Uh, in fact, at the Santa Fe Institute, we've had uh, uh, meetings and people have written papers on the limits to knowledge, right? It may well be that we live in a universe that is partially inscrutable, and that's okay, right? Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be fully scrutable, if there is such a word. Uh, and why should I care that it's inscrutable? It is what it is. I call it the philosopher's disease. Those people who want sound groundings for everything. I go, we may not have sound groundings for everything. We may never know why the universe exists, for instance, right? Uh, and I go, it's okay. We're here. We'll make the best of it. I don't really get too far. Sounds right? like two competing philosopher's diseases. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, what else was on my mind there? Politics. You've got some interest in politics. I was invited to this thing on Friday, where apparently you're going to be. And uh, I wonder what kind of parallels you see between setting up, you know, digital systems and setting up political and voting systems. What, like, in particular, like, what do you think is a good voting system? What's a better way for, in terms of structured group signaling, to get the maximum amount of intelligence from the people into the legislative body and out into decisions with high fidelity? I don't think we need a legislative body. I have written a lot on uh, liquid democracy. Uh, My essay, An Introduction to Liquid Democracy on Medium, has gotten a shitload of reads. And I believe it's the most intelligible and yet deep uh, explication on what liquid democracy is. And the idea of liquid democracy is we don't need a legislature. Uh, Each of us can vote on anything. Any of us can choose to introduce a piece of legislation. Uh, there's a mechanism for the amendment process and the amendments to be voted on, et cetera. But of course, most of us have neither the time, uh, the intellect or the knowledge or the interest to be citizen legislature. So the beauty of liquid democracy is I can proxy my uh, vote to somebody else, presumably up the gradient of capability. And sometimes it will be down the gradient, but on average, it should be up. Uh, I'm going to proxy my defense vote to my uncle, who's a retired Air Force colonel. I'm going to retire my, I'm going to proxy my medical vote to my doctor. I'm going to proxy my education vote to my third grade teacher, who I really liked. And I expect all three of those proxies would move up the gradient for the average citizen. And it can go up from there. For instance, uh, under my version of liquid democracy, I'll, I'll 
allow not-for-profits to uh, uh, receive proxies. For instance, if you're an environmentalist, proxy your environmental vote to the Sierra Club. If you're a Second Amendment gun rights guy like me, uh, you know, give it to Gun Owners of America. I would have said uh, the NRA, but they've become uh, you know, scumbags in alliance with the uh, great right-wing, vast right-wing conspiracy. So I'm done with them. GOA is better. Uh, and so that way you can have some reasonably high fidelity that someone who's, that you have alignment of interest in, but has the time to pay attention to the issues, write legislation, vote on it, amend the process, et cetera, can create uh, governance without a legislature. It is a bold idea, and I do warn in my four or five essays I've written on this, that it should be tried at smaller levels first sure. uh, because of complex, you know, one of the things I learned about my almost 20 years at Santa Fe Institute is our ability to predict the unfolding of complex systems when you perturbate them is limited. Uh, so I would not want to do bring uh, liquid democracy to the United States today. I'd love to see a town of 25,000 try it, see what happens. I'd like to see clubs do it. I'd like to see intentional communities try it. I'd like to see an online community like the Game B Group. I said governance first. I would probably build liquid democracy in too if I had the chance to write a Game B uh, platform uh, from scratch. And that would be our uh, operating system, literally, for social signaling for the purpose of governance would actually result in legislation. Uh, so uh, those who are interested, uh, check it out. Uh, an introduction to liquid democracy by Jim Rudd on Medium. Uh, good stuff. And oh, by the way, I did not invent liquid democracy. People think I did. I borrowed it from the German Pirate Party. Did you, however, invent the term snail mail? I did. <laughs> I, I, quote, I quoted, I used the term snail mail on a bulletin board on the source in January 1981. And in 1999, I put forth that claim and asked anyone who had ever used it earlier to provide earlier evidence, and nobody did. So I declare myself the coiner of the term snail mail. And I have not been paid a royalty for it. God damn it. I think it is really important to test this, these things out in small zones where they don't necessarily apply to everything universally. I think I'd heard that China, before it opened up to Western style capital markets, did so in a couple of cities to see how it worked before it did. to everybody else. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to set up society in a way where we have these experimental zones. Like in Canada, there's a, a ton of area that's putatively controlled by native groups. Mm -hmm. You know, but what we haven't seen there is them actually trying to run that area any differently than the rest of the society. But that could be a, uh, you know, it's a prototype for allowing different groups to try out different systems in different areas so that we can see how they actually operate, as long as we also have some mechanism to compare the results. In fact, in the Game B world, the uh, we are just on the edges of starting to launch the first so-called proto-Bs. Uh, and the closely related idea of civiums, which are actual on the ground communities of people trying to live by game B ethos and using game B governance that may, may be liquid democracy, may not be, might be ranked choice, might be consensus process, there's lots of possibilities, but you're exactly right. The, we believe the key is exploration. Uh, one of the things uh, we have something called the Proto B Incubator, which we have, I don't know, a surprising number of little projects in now. And uh, we encourage them all not to be doctrinaire. Try different things, different settings on this high dimensional possibility space. But 
that's why we have the incubator is so we can have horizontal communication. What is turning out to work? What's not? Uh, it's very important that game B not be utopian or ideological. Uh, we don't have all the answers, God damn it. Uh, we have a meta theory for how to do experiment, empiricism, and then feed that back into theory. Use theory to do experiment, look at the empirical results, modify your theory. And what's that look like? It looks like science, God damn it. Uh, so uh, game B is basically a uh, social operating system that uses the same tools that science does to explore and to learn. And we think that this coming uh, establishment of game B communities on the ground uh, is going to be very exciting. It's going to change the whole game, much for the better. There's these uh, semi-overlapping communities. Game B, metamodernism, integral. They've got a lot of people in common at their edges. They seem to have different specializations, right? Integral theories traditionally leaned a little bit more towards psychology and spirituality. Metamodernism leans toward politics. Game B leads toward tech solutions in a certain way, even though they've all got their tentacles and everything. Looking over these communities and whatever other uh, communities uh, contain people who might be into all of this stuff, what's holding the individuals back the most, do you think? Are there, what's, the, what's the major emotional or cognitive block on individuals or groups that's preventing them from going forward with these projects optimally? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there are lots of them, you know. Game B is one of many. In fact, another one of my projects uh, that we'll be announcing in about two months, I'll give the little preview here, uh, something that we specified in 2013 called the Big Change Coalition, which is to get all these groups, including the ones you mentioned, and a whole bunch more that are essentially on parallel tracks uh, to build a top-level uh, organization for them to talk to each other and learn from each other. Uh, it'll, it'll have only the minimalist uh, group agreement on what we, what we have in common uh, and vast room for, for pluralism. And I think that will help because they all subscale. Uh, they're all too small and you're, they don't have enough uh, people with good leadership skills and operational skills. In fact, some of them have none at all, right? Uh, they're all theory shops, talk, 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 no action. Uh, and uh, so my view is they ne all need scale uh, they all need to start to make the move from theory to practice. Though, though I, well, I take that back. There are some that are engaged in all practice and no theory. Uh, and I'd suggest that those should learn from those who do theory and should uh, build this hybrid loop of theory, practice, theory. Uh, though they don't have to. Uh, but uh, I think those are the biggest things that are, that are holding people back. Uh, and, uh, and in terms of one step above that, and this is, again, why it's so important that we get the game beyond the ground, is that an awful lot, particularly young people are attracted to these things, but the first answer is, I am stuck in game A, A, A in a horrendous fucking place. You know, uh, rent costs $3,000 a month, right? And uh, they're breaking the back of everybody who's not an AI programmer in terms of what they pay them. Life sucks big time. I need a way to have an honorable life to make a living. And when game B or any of these other groups start to be able to produce that, uh, if they can do it at scale, we'll have first hundreds of thousands and then millions of young people coming to the door. So the next thing too, I mean, so many damn things going on in game B. Game B ventures are about to be announced, which would be uh, how to think about building game B businesses that are uh, employee owned, at least in part, uh, that operate by game B ethics uh, and, uh, and do 
projects that are actually good for the world. And if we can get those things spun up and we can provide employment opportunities at a reasonable wage under good conditions for particularly young people, uh, I think that will produce a vast movement of folks. I think you're absolutely right. I think the, you know, obviously, I mean, people have been saying this for a long time, the material conditions have to change for people so that they're empowered to get involved in any of this kind of stuff. Uh, I think one of the things, you know, in my experience, I end up talking to a lot of people from a lot of different aspects of these communities. And sometimes you get a little bit of flack. People say, well, why, how did you, why did you talk to that person? Isn't that person a well-known <laughs> X, Y, or Z? That notion of guilt by association or of someone, you know, like, let's imagine you had a, a cult leader <laughs> and this cult leader is really into some of these ideas and nobody wants him in there because he's a cult leader. And yet he represents a large constituency of people who are turned on by these kinds of notions, right? It becomes a very problematic thing for people to accept those people in. And it's very similar to the kinds of social biases that are being built into, say, Facebook's algorithm. We're just looking for, oh, you're connected to this then you're not really part of us. But if we need a lot of people to do this, we need the maximum number of soldiers in our army, then we've got to let go of that guilt by association thinking. We've got to accept unruly, disturbing, or, or tarnished individuals of various kinds. We certainly need a big tent. Yeah. And I think one of the things we've been very good at it in game B, uh, you know, we have people from team red and team blue and in, in ordinary uh, politics, we have anarcho syndicalists, we've got communists self-proclaimed, right? Uh, we have people who are heavily into spirituality. We have people that think that's all bunk, right? Uh, but we built a, a, a tent big enough that we can all exist in. And I think that's really going to be important to make the armies big enough. Uh, on the other hand, one of the core holdings of Game B is that we have to manage our ecosystem against the disruptors, uh, whether they're sociopaths. I mean, that's one of the big failure modes of Game A. Game A not only tolerates sociopaths, it rewards them. I was a corporate bigwig for quite a while. Uh, I can tell you from being there that 10% of C-level executives at least are sociopaths probably 30% in finance uh, versus 1% in the population at, at large. And so it's very important that game B entities, and I've, I would recommend other entities that are in the same uh, alignment beyond agreement journey uh, to make sure they have in place ways to detect and encapsulate sociopaths. And disruptive people, uh, some of us who just have mental problems, the, the, the noise to the signal ratio is so large that, you know, you again have to encapsulate them, put them in their own little space. All right, you're a complete asshole. We'll give you your own group. Uh, if you want to rant and rave in your own group, go right ahead. Uh, but nope, you can't rant and rave out in the, in the main public square because you are nothing but noise. And oh, by the way, if you want to, you know, uh, have some other people come and listen to you rant, go right ahead. Uh, and that would be one way to end the well, uh, a, platform I've been a member of for since 1989. It's uh, one of the old, it started in 1985, spin off the whole earth review. Um, there was one guy, I don't know if he still exists or not, literally vastly insane, but uh, I mean, true, you know, stage five schizophrenia, whatever the fuck you'd call that. Also brilliant. And he was given his own conference, uh, which is equivalent of a group in Wellspeak, 
And for many years, he would make about 10 or 15 posts a day that would be two or three pages long of just beautiful, insane shit. And there was probably 25 or 30 people who would, uh, who would, uh, had signed up to, uh, to join his group to just occasionally read it. And it was like bizarro poetry. Uh, and sometimes they'd pull it out and repost it over in the wider parts of uh, the well. And then that might encourage some people to go over and look and see what this guy was up to. And uh, yeah, I think that's, there's a pretty good, interesting model of how to maybe get the benefit of even really crazy people uh, by putting them in their own little cell, but let the cell be semi-permeable. Anybody else who wants to join it can do so. Someone wants to take something from the, from the, uh, from the cell and post it out into the wider world and see if it, see if it's signal can do so. So all the stuff is, these are just thoughts, by the yeah. way. These are not the answers. Uh, you know, I don't have the answers to a goddamn thing, except what I'm having for lunch today, which is venison chili. Uh, but uh, I have some ideas and these things need to be tried. Who makes that venison chili for you? Well, this batch my wife made. Sometimes I make it. Uh, in terms of whacking the deer, that was me. <laughs> Uh, you know, we were talking earlier a little bit about, um, you know, the need for there to be a, a vast number of perspectives so that we can sample them and find consistencies between them to determine what reality is. Do you think that we're more likely to determine reality when we find things that make sense within a perspective, like you were saying, of, of a you know, level five schizophrenic? Like if there's a bigger gap between the apparent sense-making systems, is there more reward in finding something that makes sense? Or does it not make a difference how far apart they seem? Uh, let me give you an idea from uh, my academic home discipline, which is evolutionary computation, where we grow computer programs by evolving them through Darwinian evolution rather than writing them. Uh, there's a concept that we uh, borrowed from biological evolutionary theory, but made it more numerically precise, uh, which is the distinction between exploitation and exploration. Uh, if you think about any co-evolutionary context, society being a perfect one, there's hills all over it, you know, good places to be, but some are higher than others. And, you know, a company, for example, is an engine uh, to climb to the top of the hill and entrench itself, basically. And at least that's what a traditional hardcore game A company tends to do. Uh, but the hill they're on may not be anywhere near the highest hill around. And even better, because it's a co-evolutionary context, the hill could be shrinking. Uh, for instance, my first gig at a big meta corporation uh, was with a company that about 80% of its revenue from print. Uh, this was in 1992. And I said, dudes, we're fucked. And so I helped lead the charge. So by 2000, eight years later, about 90% of their revenue was electronic. That was a case of going from one hill to the other. Uh, and so you need to do both. Exploitation Let's don't take the Marxian or whatever, which means doing better at what you're currently doing near to where you are. Hill climbing, uh, if you're a pin factory, it's making pins cheaper, right? Uh, exploration, it says, oh, maybe we shouldn't make pins only, maybe we should make nails instead. And looking for things that I can, we can usually leverage skills we already have in other places. And so listening to the schizophrenic is exploration of an extreme variety. And uh, you will learn a different class of things than you will working hard, hard and tight on the things that you're currently doing. Let's say you have a game B, Proto B on the ground, a community of 1,200 people who are trying to manage themselves day to day. That's 
exploitation plus a little exploration. Uh, if you're saying, well, maybe we shouldn't uh, organize ourselves on the ground, we should all do it in virtual reality. Uh, that's exploration and that's further afield. Now, in general, the failure rate of exploration is way higher than exploitation. And so depending on where you are and what you're trying to do, one of the key decisions you need to make is how much of your capacity do you put in exploration versus exploitation? Probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's how I think about it. Well, you know, that intrigues me about you. How much of your resources do you put into each of those? What, well, you know, how much of your brain goes to new ideas you haven't thought about yet, new possibilities, and how much goes with trying to do a good job and keep working on things you already decided? Yeah, so I'm, I am spread all across the, uh, the continuum. Turned out I was a pretty damn good operational executive, uh, in addition to being a bomb thrower and a radical. So I always get sucked into the operational stuff uh, of anything I'm associated with, just because just I'm really good at it. Uh, so I got a certain amount of that, right? You know, who's managing the creation and testing and rollout of the new Game B platform? It's yo, right? Uh, it's got a little exploration in it, but it's mostly exploitation, making this thing good so people will like it and so that the moderation isn't burdensome and all that stuff. So I'm doing a lot of that. I also think a lot about the science of consciousness, for instance, which couldn't be any further out, basically. Uh, in fact, we have a whole series of podcasts about the science of consciousness, have some of the world's top thinkers in this field. Just had uh, Christoph Koch, who's one of the very top people, just uh, recorded an episode with Bernard Bars, uh, one of the inventors of global workspace uh, theory, another one of the giants of the field. Uh, Antonio Damasio will be coming on next month, uh, another monster of the scientific study of complexity. Uh, you, you don't get much further out than that. Uh, and so I spend a fair amount of my time way out there. And then as I, 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 I talked about earlier, you know, just sort of interesting edgy stuff like direct ML and this uh, new thing that Microsoft has for creating domain specific languages from inside a program and then incorporating them back into the program. So that's pretty far out, but not as far out as the scientific study of consciousness. So I guess I have a portfolio theory from fairly operational exploitation out to the far edge of looniness. Uh, and uh, that's probably who I've always been. I like that. Let's go all the way out for a second then. What's your take on consciousness? Is it a purely emergent phenomenon or does it in some proto form go all the way down? By the way, people that are interested in this should check out my podcast with Christoph Koch of the uh, Allen Brain Science Institute. We go into this in excruciating detail. Uh, but my view is, well, first, consciousness is an extremely confusing topic. And defining one's terms are really important. Yeah. Uh, and knowing what you're talking about before you start talking is exceedingly important. I consider myself more or less a Cyrillian, John Searle, the philosopher of consciousness, also a philosopher of language. And until I see evidence otherwise, which Christoph Koch claims to be able to present, but hasn't done so yet, I am going to assume as my operational hypothesis uh, that the consciousness that we have, uh, that you have, that I have, and I would set forth that my dog has, are uh, biological functions 
no different than digestion. In fact, Searle used that example a lot. He says, consciousness is like digestion or respiration. It's got multiple parts that contribute to it. Uh, it does something. Uh, it's biologically significant uh, and it's biologically expensive. It's biologically expensive in the genetic information necessary to encode it. Uh, the brain burns 20% of the energy of the whole body, even though it's only 2% of the mass. Uh, some significant percentage, maybe 15 or 20% of it, has to do with supporting consciousness. So consciousness is a biologically evolved uh, process like digestion. And I add the rut corollary to Searle's digestion quote, and it said, often has the same output. Shit. <laughs> uh, so, uh, that's my view on the consciousness that you, me, our dog, and probably animals all the way down, at least to reptiles and maybe further share in some, uh, broad sense. That is actually what we're talking about when we talk about what we actually know about consciousness. Now, then comes up the famous question, can machines be conscious? Uh, and my answer is, not exactly the same way we're conscious. Uh, and then I like I, I repurpose Searle's uh, description of digestion. I say, uh, in the food manufacturing industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, in the chemical industry, uh, they use devices called digesters, uh, which use yeast or bacteria uh, to work on chemicals in kind of you know analogous way to the way our stomach and intestines and such work on starch turn into sugar. Uh, in fact, sometimes they do just that, or they turn cellulose into methanol, right? And they call them digesters, and they're analogous to human digestion. And so I say, I fully expect there to be uh, machine machines that have functionality that's analogous to animal consciousness, and but they're not going to be the same, just the same that a digester that turns wood chips into methanol uh, is not the same thing as your and my digestive system. And if we realize that the use of consciousness to talk about, you know, machine artifacts is by metaphor and analogy, not by direct replacement, then it helps clarify the thinking uh, entirely. Uh, where I don't go and where Christoph Koch does uh, is he claims that consciousness is much more general. Uh, he claims a light switch has consciousness, uh, as does a rock, right? And I go, I don't, if, 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 if you could measure something called consciousness in a rock, it's not qualitatively in the same class of objects as the consciousness in me, you, and our dogs, right? Uh, but he makes a long argument about it, and there's a whole theory called the integrated information theory, uh, which he's one of the two or three uh, leading proponents, which lays out mathematical argument for the consciousness of a rock or a light switch. I remain skeptical. I suspect that the calculation that you do in IIT uh, specifies a necessary but not sufficient condition uh, for the emergence of, uh, of consciousness. Uh, where I don't go at all, because uh, I've never seen the evidence, are the claims of people for the cosmic consciousness or some kind of consciousness that has nothing to do with humans and was there before us and that we are somehow a manifestation of us. Can I prove it's not true? No, might be true. So might the flying spaghetti monster or Yahweh. But uh, until I see evidence, I'm just going to put it out there in the category of hypothesis that somebody made up and 
I'll wait and see until uh, they got some evidence that's reproducible. Yeah, there's hugely nuanced and fascinating areas to all this. Like one of the things I think of when I think of is a rock consciousness is, is a rock even a thing, right? Is it the kind of thing of which we could call it a thing such that it might have consciousness or not? Whereas maybe all the parts of the rock have consciousness, but a rock is just a heap of those things and isn't necessarily a thing that has any. On the other hand, in the spiritual communities that I deal with, there's this problem of, like me personally, I've had experiences. And in order to immediately describe those experiences, you reach for certain words. You say, but I want to say seems. It seems like <laughs> I beheld and was a consciousness that existed forever. <laughs> but what evidence do I have that those are the appropriate words and or conceptual categories to describe that experience, even if that experience was a valid form of information about the world? So there's this whole future spiritual conversation that's just getting started where we, you know, disentangle the ontology and the epistemology of what these experiences are. Because a lot of people have had experiences where they think, well, that's the proof. The proof is I saw it. Like, yes, but do you know what you saw? Are there any other descriptions that would work of that state? Even if that state is the most important state to be in, uh, could it be described a different way, which would have different ontological implications? Yeah, I got my own explanation for it, if you're interested in hearing it. Uh, I've been there. I've seen those states. I've tripped on acid. I've done mushrooms. I've done other, even stranger hallucinogens a hundred times. I can put myself in a uh, ego death state instantly for about 25 seconds at will. Uh, so I've seen that shit. Uh, and here's my view. Uh, that it, These are uh, non-standard brain-wide rhythmic states uh, that feel like being in Congress with a universal consciousness. And there's at least three uh, which correspond to the levels of depth of mystical uh, adepts, uh, but they are qualitatively the same as some of the more mainstream uh, brain-wide rhythm states. The two most well-known are the task mode network and the default mode network. Uh, task mode network is when your brain's working hard to learn something and do something that it doesn't know real well. Uh, like for instance, if you're not an auto mechanic uh, and you're trying to figure out how to change the alternator on your car, you're doing it slowly and carefully and thinking hard, making sure you don't make a move that you can't reverse. That's the task mode network. When you're a kid, when you're learning how to catch a batted ball, uh, or if you're in a, a soccer playing place, how to, you know, do whatever it is soccer people do with the soccer balls uh, when you're a kid. That's task mode network. Default mode network, which is somewhat related to mystical states, uh, particularly to the level one mystical state, it's kind of the daydreaming mode. Uh, where you're where you're not focused on a task and it's your brain is just following itself uh, it may be talking to itself or may not even be using words it may just be flipping from image to image and doing its own weird little thing which I enjoy being I enjoy being in default mode yeah. and it's a good entry mode to sort of the first level of the mystical experience uh, and I expect that that is uh, a mode that's accessible to a lot of people in fact I believe I can bring most people into a level one mystical experience by a 36 hour process. The end isn't large, but it's large enough for me to believe that it's not that hard to do. Uh, the, the, the further out mystical states, much harder, but uh, they are coherent. I would believe they're coherent in the brains. And uh, we're seeing a lot of signs of this because uh, the, uh, uh, the head guy from Tibetan Buddhism, what they call the Dalai Lama, is very interested in this. And he has gotten some very senior people from his 
uh, community to work with brain imaging people. And sure as shit, when people are in very, very, very deep uh, states, as testified by the Dalai Lama, pretty good source, they have characteristic activation zones in their brain, which are non-standard. And uh, so I think that provides some amount of evidence uh, that these are brain states which have qualia, the sense of experience of not only am I, I am in contact with the universal intelligence, but I am the universal intelligence. Uh, and uh, that's all it is. I shouldn't say all, because that is significant. It's interesting. And it's worth visiting from time to time. Uh, but I also warn people uh, that it's so dramatic that you should probably not spend a hell of a lot of time there, but get what you can get in terms of perspective about the everyday world. Uh, but don't get sucked into thinking that that's the world. That's just some shit in your head. Uh, take from it what you will and then go back out and deal with the world and become more efficacious in the world. I know that's not what the, the spiritualists like to hear, but that's the, that's the Ruddian synthesis from many years of studying cognitive Ruddian science. synthesis. All right. <laughs> How important do you think the default mode network is in the brain self-organization? Do you think it's really important for us to follow all those pathways in order to keep ourselves reasonably coherent? I think it's doing some of our background processing for us. You know, those cases where we, you know, uh, it happens to me a lot where I'm working on a problem, stuck, sleep, wake up in the morning. I know the answer. Uh, I suspect my default mode network has been tweaked a little bit, uh, probably while I'm asleep, right? Uh, default net networks can also be dangerous. They're thought to be uh, probably the main vector of depression, uh, where the default mode network gets caught in what's called morbid rumination, uh, where people are just going over and over and over and over the same negative thoughts, same negative valences. Uh, so, and, but on the other hand, they're, they're, they're a state I love to get into where you just kind of like, oh, I'm not really thinking about anything, just spacing out and let the brain go where it is. Beautiful, fun. You're in a hammock on a beautiful summer day. And then, you, you know, you, the sounds that are coming in aren't really, you're not really focusing on the sounds, but they're sort of there and you're not really thinking about anything, but stuff's just going here and there. Uh, and you can trigger even more intense versions of that with neural feedback, which I've done. Uh, so I think it's important and it's good, but it's also known, as I said, to be uh, fairly closely associated with depression and also a, uh, a less strong than normal default mode network is correlated at least, we don't know if it's causal, with schizophrenia. Uh, so it does seem to be important, but you need to take care of it. How and why did you start doing a podcast? What was the genesis of that idea? What makes it feel important and or fun? Uh, it was quite matter of kind of random, frozen accident. Uh, in 20... Which, how fuck year is this? 2019, so 2017, 2018, I wrote a fair number of essays and got them up, put them up on Medium, tried to get them published on like the Atlantic, didn't get any of them published. Too highbrow for them stupid motherfuckers. Right? Uh, but anyway, I'm proud of my work, but I am not a fluid writer. I work hard to produce a decent written artifact, weeks and weeks. I have friends that could just knock written stuff out and I go, damn, I wish I had that skill. I just don't have it. Uh, and I was bitching about it at the uh, dinner table with my family uh, uh, Christmas 2018. And my daughter said, dad, dad, uh, you may struggle as a writer, but you are a world champion bullshitter. You talk with the best of them. 
And I took that to heart and I go, yeah, that's right. I've always been a first class bullshitter. I could talk to anybody about anything. And because I read so much and know so much and don't forget anything, uh, you know, I can deal with anybody at the highest level, pretty much. It's scary. Uh, And so I thought about it and I took a month off that spring where I was disconnected from everything for four weeks. uh, And I just thought about what I'm going to do next. And uh, I really don't want to crank out any more long, deep thought pieces, or at least not don't want to make that my main effort. Uh, I certainly don't want to start a business. That's too much like work. Uh, But I got too much piss and vinegar to uh, just sort of retire. And I said, you know, Kat's idea about a podcast is a good idea. And so uh, um, I started doing the research into, I don't listen to podcasts. I admitted earlier. So I uh, dug into the researching the whole area of podcasts. How many are there? You know, uh, how do they work? Uh, you know, what's the technology? What do you need to do one? Uh, how long should they be? What kinds are there? And so I spent about five or six weeks uh, researching the domain of podcasts. And I go, seems interesting. Seems to be a wild west where there's lots of different forms of doing podcasts. Uh, it seems like it's not impossible to find an audience if you have a good one. Uh, and it sounds like, yeah, that's something I could do. And I would enjoy doing, particularly uh, bringing in guests who know things that I'd like to know more about, uh, read their books or read a bunch of their papers or uh, what have you, and uh, and talk to them for an hour and a half. And so I said, let me try it. And so I committed to doing 10. And I found a producer to take care of the scut work I didn't want to do, uh, particularly the audio editing, which I did once, and it's a pain in the ass, uh, especially for ours, where we have pretty high production values. And uh, so I did 10 and I said, this is fun. And we found an audience pretty quickly. Uh, And so I said, all right, let's do 25. And so we did another 25. And I said, "Mm, the audience continues to grow and I continue to get better at doing it. And I continue, and of course I wondered if I would be able to attract enough good guests, but turns out lots of people want to be on a podcast. (laughs) And now that we, you know, we're up in the ranking ratings a bit in, you know, places that we even get, you know, publishers come to us. Mostly we tell them no, but some of them have turned out to be some of our better uh, podcasts. Uh, So it's turned out that the sourcing wasn't a problem. Uh, did I ever get tired of talking? No. <laughs> and uh, I continue to enjoy doing it. So that's the story of how the Jim Rutt show came around. That's terrific. I love that. I relate to that a lot. I feel like, I mean, I, I sort of stumble into it a little bit myself. And I feel like there's a part of me that gets nourished by being able to have pretty interesting, pretty resonant conversations all over the map of idea space that's really important for me. And some of the time I fantasize that it's useful for the broader hypothetical community to (laughs) just have people doing this. So I I think there is, um, I think there's a value to what you're doing above and beyond, you know, having a fun conversation and bringing the ideas of these people forward. I think just the act of engaging and showing the rest of the community that the engagements are going on helps to generate the shared community confidence that needed to take these projects forward in the future. I absolutely agree with that. I also, uh, to be, you know, a, a little bit more operational, uh, believe that the way that I do my podcasts is a useful example for people, you know, that, uh, I'm fearless, right. Uh, I just jump in and just go with it. Right. I'll talk to a, you know, a 
senior nuclear physicist about time and space, right? I'll talk to a, uh, you know, uh, expert astronomer about Fermi's paradox and just don't be afraid, just go, go for it. Right. Uh, and I'll try to do it with utter good faith. Right. I won't, I never attack my guests, but I often push back uh, and say, yeah, I just don't buy that. Right. Make that either convince me or maybe you won't. Uh, and at the end of it, we'll, we'll fairly often we'll say, you know, Hmm, uh, obviously I didn't convince you. And I go, Nope, you didn't. Uh, but I understand your idea a lot better than I did before. And uh, that's how you argue in good faith with people is you make sure that you can understand their idea and, you know, do the equivalent of steel manning where you can say their idea as well or better than they can. And I try to model that on the podcast and hopefully, um, uh, uh, at least in part, uh, not always, I can be cantankerous and ornery too. Um, some of that people shouldn't model. Don't model that people. Uh, you know, been at least partially a good model for uh, good faith discourse at a pretty high level. I think so. And I, I, you know, I appreciate your intelligence and your good humor and your willingness to go anywhere. Like uh, <laughs> you've, you've gone with seriously every question I've asked from every random angle I wanted to ask a question from. So I really appreciate that, Jim. Thanks. Uh, when... When can we expect to see the mass game A, uh, game B exodus from Facebook? A couple weeks. Okay. Well, we're all looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Hope to get a soft open up this week and then a more general announcement uh, the week after. Uh, and uh, so far, so good, but we could run into a roadblock. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll let, I'll, you'll be one of the first to know. Okay. I wouldn't mind coming back on and uh, announcing it. I would love that. This has been a lot of fun and uh, fuck Zuck. Yeah, exactly. Fuck, uh, no, no, Zuck is a pig fucker. Zuck is a pig fucker. All yeah. right. So people, uh, <laughs> just go on Facebook and type, Zuck is a pig fucker. And just see what happens. <laughs> ¶¶